You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Late in his posthumously published Philosophical Investigations, in section 373, Ludwig Wittgenstein presents a cryptic aphorism regarding grammar. Quote, Grammar tells what kind of object anything is. Theology is grammar. End quote. That thought has offered teasing possibilities to people of faith as long as we've read Wittgenstein, and one fascinating project arising from that prompt is to think of the scriptures as a grammar of sorts. W.H. Bellinger undertakes just that project in his new book, Psalms as a Grammar of Faith, and Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him on to explore it. Bill, thank you for coming aboard. Thanks very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Well, Bill, certainly our listeners are aware uh, of the Psalms as devotional literature. Uh, monks chant through them regularly. Worship services that use the lectionary let us hear the Psalms every Sunday in the context of a Sunday service. Uh, but you're calling for something else, namely preaching and teaching the Psalms, as well as using them devotionally. So uh, what does that change in setting promise? And is it too early in the interview to say Sitzem Leben? Well, no, we can say Zitzimleben. <laughs> what, what I would like to do is tease out a little bit uh, what you've said about how the Psalms get used in the life of faith. Um, uh, certainly people are, uh, are used to the tr- piety, the, the tradition of reading the Psalms as privately as a part of their individual piety. They are certainly used to using the Psalms uh, by the hospital bed or beside the uh, grave and reading the Psalms. I mean, the 23rd Psalm is a kind of icon of faith that's used in those settings so often. Uh, but you also mentioned the liturgical use of the Psalms, whether it's in uh, the monastic tradition or, or in, uh, in other traditions where, where the Psalms are probably used in worship settings uh more more often than any other set part of the of the biblical canon but they are but they are almost always used as a response to something and so you have a scripture read and there's a a, a responsive psalm uh and but but they are not very often preached on or taught and so uh, what, what I'm really asking for is that we do all, use the Psalms in all those ways. I think all those ways are positive things to do. Uh, one of my friends has said the 11th commandment ought to be, thou shalt preach the Psalms. But I really think you need to say, thou shalt preach and teach the Psalms, because uh Sometimes if you just walk in and begin to preach the Psalms, people don't have a kind of context for talking about this and learning some of the background and Zitzimleben, as you call it, the settings in life that these Psalms related to in history and can relate to uh, in contemporary life. And I think that helps us uh, get a sense of, have a background and a context for thinking about preaching on the Psalms as well. I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really interested in having, uh, for people of faith to have a conversation 
to live, if I can put it this way, to live a conversation between the language of the Psalms and the language of their lives. And I think if we can use the Psalms in all those various ways as a part of church and as a part of faith, that uh, it, it really helps to nurture that. That's good. That's good. I mean, one of the things that I appreciate the, about this book is precisely that uh, it puts the Psalms in the place of primary utterance. I mean, I, the way that you just framed it, I liked it. Uh, so often we think of the Psalms as responding to things that are, you know, even if not prior in terms of authority, at the very least in terms of the narrative of the service, something else happens and a Psalm responds. You're saying, let the Psalms talk first and then we can comment on them the way that we do with a gospel or an epistolary reading. Is that is that a fair enough take? Yes, that's that's exactly right. I think we can do that. We we can uh we can sing the psalm and we can teach the psalm and we can preach the psalm. All of those things. Very good. Well as I mentioned in the opening, uh your first chapter refers to Wittgenstein's mysterious aphorism uh, and really, it's an aside in the middle of an aphorism. Theology is grammar. Uh, so what about your project is Wittgensteinian? And in what ways, if any, does your project here stand as a reply to Wittgenstein's sort of tentative association? Okay. Well, I, I need I need first to confess that uh, I don't think anybody would confuse me for a philosopher, uh, I, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I, I, uh, majored in both philosophy and religion. So I, I really remember the Wittgensteinian, uh, aphorism, uh, and, and it was more a point of, uh, a taking off point for me. And, uh, I did my graduate work in Cambridge where Wittgenstein is still, still revered. It, it really is, I think, in, as you point out quite well, it is a kind of random statement uh, in what he does. So uh, I guess for me, uh, one of the things I have really enjoyed in my career is teaching Hebrew. And so I'm really kind of a grammarian in some ways. I mean, grammar is always very important to me. And, uh, and, and so I suppose in some ways this work is more a response, a reply to Wittgenstein's uh, random statement, as you put it, uh, uh, than anything else. I don't know if you know uh, the fairly recent volume by Brent Strom entitled The Old Testament is Dying. I, I've uh, not read that one, and, so say a little bit more okay. about it. Well, he, he uses the analogy of the Old Testament as a language and uh, and that the Old Testament is analogous right now, he thinks in our culture to a language that's dying. And so he uh, he talks about steps that can be taken and have been taken in some cases to reinvigorate languages that were dying so that the language doesn't die and that sort of thing, and suggests that that communities of faith need to do some of those kinds of things with the Old Testament. Uh, and I suppose for me, I think of uh, the Psalms, one of the things I'm trying to do here is thinking of the Psalms uh, as analogous to learning a language. And when we are learning the language of the Psalms, we are being formed, we are being uh, nurtured in faith. 
it's a way of growing in faith. And I talk in the book about very briefly about some of the folk who have who have uh, uh, who have responded to Wittgenstein and have tried to talk about uh, 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 a grammar of faith. Theology is a, a grammar of faith. So in my mind, the Psalms confess faith. They they articulate the faith of these ancient people of faith. And uh, every time they profess this faith, they were being formed in this faith, and they were um, they were made to be able to embrace this faith and keep going in this faith and and not be distracted from uh it's really pilgrimage language it's it's the language of the journey of faith and and that the psalms sing I, I i do think uh i haven't used this so much in this book but i often think of the psalms as uh, the pilgrimage songs of faith the songs that israel sang uh, while they were going through the journey or life or pilgrimage of faith, and uh, and and so that this part of what it is is a grammar for me is seeing how this the language of the Psalms relates to the language of our life of faith. Uh, probably Walter Brueggemann is the person who has put that most specifically for me that 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 we really haven't dealt with the Psalms if we do not uh, allow the Psalms to uh, converse with the life of uh, the, the, with the language of our lives and vice versa. So that, that the Psalms are very, uh, very much tied into our experience of the life of faith. And the text seems to work that way to me, at least. So uh, I don't know if that helps you some, uh, in terms of how I think about uh, a grammar working. Oh, certainly, certainly. And, you know, one of the most interesting contributions that this book makes is to take the Psalter as a unified text, or at least as a unifying framework for texts, uh, and make it the site for the grammar. In other words, if you want to do that grammatical work, you need to look at the collection called the Psalter and not just particular psalms or even a genre of psalms. Uh, how does that approach, because I really like that approach, how does it relate to your call for teaching and preaching the psalms? Uh, well, yes. I, I think um, uh, I did my undergraduate work at Furman University, and one of the long series they've had uh, there is, is a series called What Really Matters, and when it came my turn to do that, what I suggested that really matters was reading. And uh, I, I do tend to think of uh, uh, reading, uh, how we read and how we read the Psalms is very important to me. And it does seem in, in the studies I know, at least, of reading, that how the uh, the sequence of reading is very important. So how you how you begin to read the psalm or the or the book of psalms, either one, is very important for how you're going to continue reading and how you put that put that together. And I think the more we can do to think think intentionally about how we are reading and what 
context, we're back to Zitzemleben again. We're back to what kind of setting in which we read. The context in which we read, uh, actually context, I think, is probably the most important principle for uh, biblical interpretation. And, uh, well, just take an example. Um, We read the 23rd Psalm, uh, and we tend to read the 23rd Psalm as it is. But we don't think about the fact that it comes after the 22nd Psalm, which begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that Psalm takes a journey as well and comes at the end to a pretty remarkable end in great contrast to, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you come to the 23rd Psalm, and 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 uh, this remarkable image of God as shepherd and host, and uh, and then you go into Psalm the twenty fourth Psalm, which is about worship and worship's relationship to the rest of life. When we read all, when we read those things together, and I'm that's just one sort of micro example, really. Uh, uh, to me, it uh, greatly enriches and enhances our reading of these texts. Uh, now, please understand, I'm delighted for people to read one psalm. <laughs> I'm not dis- trying to dissuade people of that, but I do think if we can read it in the context of the whole of the sequence, uh, we can see uh, the psalms related to ancient Israel's life together. We can see... Uh, uh, the vibrancy of the text, we can, uh, it just adds to, it, it adds to our reading and interpretation and understanding of the text. I want us to read the text in every way we can that, uh, that will help us and, uh, uh, and, and will help us relate these Psalms to, uh, our individual lives, but also the uh, broader community life in which we live uh, because they are they were for ancient israel both individual texts and community texts they are community and relational texts as well and when we can see it in the picture of the whole book of psalms i think it helps us to get at that well i want to i want to stick with this uh relationship between the individual and the communal for a moment uh i want to say along the way there to our listeners that the middle chapters of this book, we're going to spend a lot of our time on the end chapters, but the middle chapters present to a reader some of the best insights of psalm scholarship uh, over the last couple centuries. And I, I think that, you know, like I said, we're going to spend time on the new ground that this book breaks, but I want to commend it to our listeners for a good introduction to or a review of psalm scholarship. So I want, I, I do want to talk about that question of... Uh, individual and communal from this section where you are, you know, bringing forth uh, some of that scholarship on the Psalms. And I want to stay with this question of, of, of the, the person and of Israel. Um, so often readers tend to take lament Psalms in particular, like Psalm 22, as mainly individual in character, uh, instead of situating them in Israel's narrative. Uh, what do we miss when we only focus on one side of that? Uh, well, I, I, I uh, first want to say that I think you're exactly right. It needs to be a both-and, that we see both the individual and the community 
the communal side of it, that both of both of those are important uh, and that uh, so that I take the book of Psalms to be a book which uh, which ancient Israel sang in worship. And 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 when I say worship, I, I mean, by definition, communal worship, but which also uh, they read and meditated upon. So uh, when we got to the point of having a book of Psalms, now obviously this uh, this developed over time, uh, but um, I, what what I think we miss is if we uh, if we read the Psalms as only individual Psalms, we miss uh, so much of the rich community language that's in those Psalms. The language about relationships, the language about uh, uh, the power of the community to uh, nurture faith, and the language about the difficulties of faith and the conflicts that come in in the, with enemies in that faith. Uh, and I'm just thinking about Psalm 22 right now, and the things that go on uh, in the early part of Psalm 22. Uh, Talks the the uh, one of the wonderful phrases is there. Israel is enthroned on the God is enthroned on the praises of Israel. That that there is a great sense of the tradition of faith and remembering memory is very important for ancient Israel in these texts. And as they remember their faith, they confess their faith and they their faith is nurtured and they see how that faith. Uh, gets related to the current difficulties that they are uh, experiencing. Much of the Old Testament, and I now think that much of uh, the book of Psalms uh, in part relates to the biggest trauma the ancient Israelite community ever experienced, and that was the fall of Jerusalem and the beginning of the Babylonian exile. Um, I mean, the temple was destroyed, which means they had no uh, in their uh, in the world they had up to that point they have no means of uh, of uh, affecting atonement. Uh, the king is gone. There is no king, and so they have no means of justice coming in the community. So it that really meant an end to life, what they have known as life. And the center of that life, particularly the temple, had not held. And so that's a crucial um, – that's just a major trauma. It's not it, – it was a trauma for individuals, but it was also a trauma for the whole community. And I just think that uh, uh, we, we, need, we need to understand and encounter and see Scripture in, encountering both of those things. Does that, that help you some? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, to focus on the other side of that, you know, you mentioned the the focus on language in particular in the in the praise psalms. And again, this is uh, not the new ground you break, but I mean, it was a nice reminder, first of all, that the, the word hallelujah in Hebrew is imperative, not indicative. Uh, but then also that, you know, the psalms really kind of foreground language. So... Let me ask you this. I mean, you know, that focus on the language of worship, how does it connect to this book's project of reading the Psalter as a grammar? Because it seems like 
that's a pretty natural connection. Right. I agree. It is, it is, a, another, uh, grammar point. Uh, uh, the word hallelujah is a call to praise. That is right. It's in the imperative. And what, what you, what usually follows it is the indicative. That is what God has done and how God has been present and, and, uh, and has taught. And, uh, that that becomes the the praise of God becomes the community's uh, confessing its faith in uh, this in in the God who is praiseworthy. What I what I like particularly to talk about is how the Psalms, in ways that seems to me, we particularly in contemporary uh, uh, circles in the church, we seem to have trouble putting together the emotional and the intellectual and hallelujah is is a word in the psalms that that weds those two it's uh, it, it is uh, the psalms the psalms of praise particularly they are passionate about uh the faith it was uh, one of the great old psalm scholars of uh, 19th 20th century hermann gunkel used to talk about their enthusiasm for god uh at the same time, there was always a reason for the praise, so that that there was this wedding of the emotion and the intellect, and uh, I, I think that's uh, I think that's pretty important. Uh, the grammar also uh, is a way of articulating this community's memory of uh, of what God has done for them, and. Uh, the memory of uh, uh, the divine presence with them, and uh, I think that's uh, uh, that's also a part of of the grammar that is here, and all of that helps them to uh, to claim and confess this uh, this faith together. And it strikes me as a a particularly uh, a particularly strong focus. I'll put it that way on contingency, right? Uh, the reason that uh, singing these songs makes any sense at all uh, is because Yahweh has done this. Uh, it's not as if these songs could emerge from the imagination of a people who hasn't lived through that story. So, I mean, it, it strikes me that, I mean, you know, this is a little bit anachronistic to call the Psalms a historical imagination because none of them has met Herodotus yet. Uh, but yet, I mean, there's there's certainly some contingency uh, that is at the core of this. I mean, it's not a peripheral thing, right? No, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I think that's that's right. It is a um, yeah. It is a, a cultural memory is a word gets gets used sometimes in Old Testament studies these days. Uh, that that the memory here is being recounted in terms of reciting the mighty acts of God. Yeah, it, and it, yeah, I think you're right. It's not. Um, uh, it is imaginative in the sense that it's uh, creatively, uh, powerfully creative in terms of its grammar and rhetoric. Uh, the way it it. Uh, um, recounts the mighty acts of God, but it is not imaginative in the sense that it's made up. Right, right. That makes good sense. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, well, now that we've established some of the book's philosophical framework, uh, 
uh, I'd like for you to talk our listeners through how they combine. Uh, so, I mean, we've been talking about the Psalter, and we've been talking about its five divisions, uh, five books they often get called. I want you to take a couple minutes and talk our readers through the basic shape of the five uh, books of the Psalter. We're going to comment on them at some length here, but, uh, you know, since we are talking about the way that the Psalter as, you know, and I'd like to hear you, I mean, would you like to call it a, a unified text or a unifying framework for text? But how does the Psalter itself as a structure uh, contribute to this grammatical project? Okay, very good. Well, let, let, let me uh, uh, let me take just a minute and sort of, um, well, as you know now, it'll be more than a minute. <laughs> and, and that <laughs> to, is fine. Uh, I mean, I, I want our listeners to hear this division because I didn't hear about it till seminary. Uh, so, I mean, right. I, I imagine um, uh, most of our listeners have not either. Right. Yeah. I, I still think most of us uh, read the Psalms just as individual discrete texts. Uh, there are five books of Psalms. Uh, the first book, one through 41 is, uh, well, I, I should say the first two Psalms, most scholars today would understand to be introductions. The first Psalm, uh, which lays out the, uh, the lifestyle of, of the wise and the lifestyle of the foolish. And, uh, uh, the second Psalm, which, uh, uh, essentially installs the Davidic king as God's representative and ruling. And then you move, uh, and it's interesting that in that second Psalm, the king, uh, faces opposition. And then you move in the first book almost totally through psalms of lament that are cries for help and uh, that are cries for uh, for God's refuge uh, in the midst of trouble and in the midst of uh, difficulties. And now there are some notable exceptions, Psalm 8, which is a famous uh, uh, creation psalm, and Psalm 19, Psalms 15 to 24 actually are more about worship, uh, and I tend to see these psalms as having, um, as I tend to read them in clusters that have some uh, thematic similarities and some vocabulary that fits them together. So, uh, but the first book of Psalms after the introductory first two is uh, mostly individual cries for help. Uh, book two is 42 to 72, and it continues uh, with individual cries for help. And there are lots of psalms in those that cry for help in the face of enemies. There are lots of adversaries. Uh, sometimes they are uh, uh, people who use false uh, uh, language, false accusation against the, the, the uh, psalmist. Uh, sometimes they're just called oppressors, but, uh, but they're, they're, that, that continues really in, in the second book. But the introduction, the first Psalm of, uh, of that second book, uh, begins with what has now become to me a very important image. And that is this image of, uh, I long for your presence, O God, in the same way that the deer, the thirsty deer, longs for water. So that 
water is as necessary for the deer, which is in this case actually a doe, the doe's life as the divine presence is for the life of of uh, of this person of faith. And this person seems to be distant from that presence in Psalm 42. So there's some sense of exile that's already coming to the fore in the second book. The third book begins with Psalm 73, which is uh, a initially a strong reflection that the psalmist is very worried about the prosperity of the wicked. And uh, it is upon uh, going into the sanctuary that the speaker comes to an awareness now that he can, he or she can uh, not be so worried about the prosperity of the wicked as can be concerned about being in the presence of God. And so that uh, uh, I think that's an interesting shift sort of in the middle of the book of Psalms and the first Psalm of book three, that uh, uh, there's a clear move to uh, having worried about the troubles of life in books one and two here, uh, the psalmist comes to worry about the presence of God. And it's interesting because book three when you move to the very next psalm, Psalm 74, it clearly is about the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in the 6th century. And the destruction of the sanctuary, uh, when you read 73 and 74 together, it's in going to the sanctuary that the psalmist in Psalm 73, that this problem of the prosperity of the wicked uh, is solved for the the speaker, whereas when you get in Psalm seventy four, now the sanctuary is destroyed. So, what are, what what will happen in this third book, and that whole problem of uh, of um, of uh, the the center of life not having held for these people really becomes very pressing in the third book of Psalms. And its last two psalms, Psalm 88, which is the one psalm that ends, it ends literally in Hebrew and English with the word darkness. There is no word of hope at the end of that psalm. It's really the only psalm that's like that. And then Psalm 89 is about the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of of the kingdom of David. So... At the end of, of, of books one through three, we really have a problem. So how is ancient Israel going to live now without the Davidic king, who back at the beginning of the Psalter was chosen to be God's representative uh, to bring justice and to bring wholeness uh, to these people? So what happens then at the beginning of book four is we have, first of all, we have a Psalm of Moses, uh, the only Psalm of Moses in Psalm 90, which takes you with the Psalm of Moses back to a time before there was a David. Uh, and it moves, it's very concerned again about the refuge of God in the midst of this crisis, but moves very quickly to the kingship of God, the reign of God, in beginning in Psalm 93. And uh from there, books four and five seem to be trying to come to terms with this confession of faith that uh, the Lord reigns, and yet 
they are living in exile and in book five, the aftermath of exile. And so the question is, how will they go on? And the answer is they will go on with God as their king. They have had a king all along, long before there was a David, and this is God as king, and that they will uh, continue to live in that way and remember we're back to uh, that memory again of of the mighty acts of God and how God is with them in the midst of this difficulty. And eventually this leads to uh, what is uh, often described as the uninhibited praise of God. The last five Psalms are, I take to be the the sort of concluding doxology of the whole book of Psalms. And of course, the 150th Psalm ends with let everything that breathes praise the Lord. So that's uh, that's too brief. Uh, or you may be saying <laughs> not brief enough. But, well, no, 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 no. Uh, we've got the framework. Now we can outline. Un- yeah, we've got the framework. Now we can start to unpack it, right? Because exactly when exactly. I studied the Psalms formally, uh, and this was in seminary some 20 years ago, I remember learning that the Psalter moves from lament in book one to praise in book five. Uh, but this book really adds some complexity to that motion, which I appreciate. Uh, so what in the Psalter recommends a more persistent place for lament in the course of the Psalter's journey than perhaps I learned about 20 years ago? Uh, that's a, a very good question. Um And I have to say that one of the things that made me begin to think about that question was uh, a couple years ago in a class, uh, I had a student ask me, he said, well, if that's true, that the Psalms move from lament to praise and the praise uh, should be then uh, in book five, uh, why is it that we have Psalms 109 and 137, which are perhaps the most intense examples of imprecatory psalms, that is, psalms that uh, pray against enemies in 109, an individual prayer, and in 137, the community prayer for, for, for the whole of ancient Israel. Uh, why are we having these in Book 5 if, if it's supposed to go from lament to praise? And so I began to think about that uh, a bit, and I do think that as a sort of general sense, in the last half of the Psalter, in books four and five particularly, there are more community psalms and there are more psalms of praise. I mean, I think that's right. But that doesn't mean that lament is absent. Um, in, uh, In the Psalms 120 through 134 is one of the very nice collections of psalms. It's, the title uh, is the Psalms of Ascent. It's, it's a memory of, of pilgrimage, of uh, psalms of pilgrimage. And uh, there are three of those psalms that are lament psalms. And uh, I've mentioned 109 and 137. In the collection of, interestingly, Psalms 138 through 145, we have a a collection of Davidic psalms at the end of the Psalter, and there are laments there, too. In fact, they kind of sound like the laments from from Book One. And uh, and even in the Psalms of Praise, you have kind of under the surface uh, 
the sense that uh, we are praising God and we are praising the God who is with us, even when we know that there are times of uh, poverty, there are times of defeat, there are times of exile, there are times of trouble and woe, so that even in the Psalms of praise, lament has not been forgotten. And um, it does seem to me that a careful reading of those Psalms uh, in Book 5 suggests that lament is still around. <laughs> and uh, and even when the, the – the, I'm, I'm really struck by that last Psalm 150 – Psalm 150 is rather different from many of the hymns of praise in that it is, there are about a dozen, you were talking a while ago about the word hallelujah as a call to praise, it's imperative rather than indicative. There are about a dozen uses of that in that short psalm. And it does seem to me that the psalm, as we finish, as we exit the Psalter and move on, the call is to continue to praise, and yet the call to praise, if we look at the fifth book, fourth and fifth books of Psalms, is still in the context of uh, chaos in life. Chaos has, uh, chaos has by the Creator been tamed, but not, uh, um, not done away with. So, and, and, yeah, uh, and that, that conjunction of praise and chaos I found interesting, uh, and I thought that I heard echoes of Jonathan Levinson's work there, uh, especially in uh, Creation and the Persistence of Evil. Uh, yes. In, in what ways do you see your project resonating uh, with Levinson's? What ways do you see it departing from it? And by the way, since we're talking shop here, Explain to our listeners what Levinson's project is when he talks about the persistence of evil or the persistence of chaos in the uh, biblical canon. Uh, well, in uh, in the creation narratives in, uh, in in the Hebrew Bible, you get uh, uh, order brought out of chaos uh, by the Creator and and the the great deep. Uh, is shaped into uh, uh, is is uh, formed and shaped and filled as uh, as God's creation creation and uh, as well including uh, humanity, uh, but chaos still seems to assert itself. Uh, it is not. Uh, it is not. Uh, completely done away with it is still there it asserts itself and it so that evil is persistent and uh and in some ways i mean one way one way to read the old testament is to read the old testament as how uh we can uh live in faith and uh and confess the reign of God, and yet at the same time understand that there is chaos. I still love the phrase, which I think is a Bonhoeffer phrase, uh, chaos knocking at the door, that, that chaos is, uh, is a part of life uh, and that we see frequently, and, uh, and that it, it, it is, uh, it has, that has continued to be the case. So I, I'm, uh, I'm trying to get at uh, 
uh, how how what what it does seem to me the Psalms do in books four and five particularly is they put the reign of God and this experience of chaos together, and the uh, the confession of faith that the Lord reigns in Hebrew Yahweh Malach, which is very important, I think, in the Psalms, uh, is. Um, uh, but but it's it's spoken in the context of experiencing this chaos in which the center of life as as this people has known it, it is no more and uh but but that it is in the psalms the confession of that faith the singing of that faith the uh, uh the memory of that faith uh that makes it possible to continue on trusting and uh, believing that faith, it's um, uh, it, it is a sort of a, a project that, in some ways, um, some of some of this and this, uh, I think, fits with Levinson. It, it it resonates with some of Jewish tradition, I think, and uh, uh, I think some of the grammar of the Lament Psalms. Uh, um, resonates with that as well. Well, and one of the logical responses to that, one of the human responses that is intelligible, if we have both the reign of God and the persistence of chaos, is protest. Uh, and I appreciate yes. that this book emphasizes protest as one of the modes of worship in the Psalter. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll just go ahead and say that, I mean, on this show I've had Calvinists on, I've had process thinkers on, and what they have in common is that they don't have much of a place for protest in their theology. Uh, they tend either to psychologize it, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, since I've been teaching in the South for 20 years, it's the bless your heart approach to the <laughs> Psalms of protest. Yeah. You know, you think that God, you know, calling out to God's going to do something, bless your heart. Um, let me ask you this. I mean, when we include protest not as a peripheral thing but as a a central focus of our theology uh what practices uh take on a different cast what practices make more sense uh if we can recover protest as an element of our lives with god okay that's i find that a very interesting question and um uh, I, I think that's one we uh, we could well, and particularly in a day which uh, I would suggest often for lots of people does feel chaotic. That that uh, uh, that that's that's something that would be helpful to think about a bit. I I, I um uh I suppose one thing for me is that this is one of the places where I think you have to. Uh, combine teaching and worship that uh, I, I don't think it's all that helpful for a pastor to just stand up on a Sunday morning and say, we need to protest more, and uh, here's my protest to God today. Uh, I think we have to have some settings where we have been able to read and teach and learn and think about those texts together and get some context for them first. And then that you can put the the preaching and worship and the teaching together, and I think that that uh, that that would be helpful. 
I think a second thing is that uh, I think it would be uh, another practice of faith that would be helpful to us these days is uh, uh, more writing and journaling. If we can write our protest to God, uh, I think that's uh, that's something that uh, would help us process our own faith. And uh, particularly if we can do that in conversation with the Psalms, that would that would help us to uh, uh, think about these things a bit more seriously. And then another thing I would say is that uh, I think we need to to um, I think we need to come to the view that sometimes our questions and our protests really are our confessions of faith. I mean, I think sometimes we want to see those as contrasts, but in, but particularly if they are still in the context of our candid, our honest uh, conversation with God, I, I tend to think those things are, uh, are, are, are I tend to think of those things as confessions of faith. And uh, so I, I think in that sense, protest is important. Um, and I, I mean, part of my uh, part of my comment would be: Do you have pretty strong protests to God in the Bible? And uh, I mean, I take those texts seriously as I do other texts in the Bible. So um, I mean, that's the point in which um, I think. Uh, all of the canon, including those parts, are uh, are there for um, to nurture faith with us. And what I appreciate is that you know, again, just in a you know a, a rural church like Bogart Christian Church where I worship, uh, people want to pray to God when their relatives get sick. They want to pray to God when their relatives, uh, you know, fall into addictions and fall into family strife and do these sorts of things. And, you know, it just strikes me that, you know, this language of protest allows some distance between uh, what God uh, has done in these mighty acts and what is the situation surrounding us in this moment. It seems like that distance is, is just so integral to the way the Bible tells the story of the world, but so many systematic theologies cut that distance out of it. Does that make some sense? Uh, yes, it does. And I think that's exactly right. I think that's, uh, that distance is, uh, <laughs> that distance is very present there. Yes. And I, and I, I realize in, I'm kind of in drifting into existentialist vocabulary there. You know, that's a Sartre's, you know, nothingness between here and there. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I think that Sartre might have a point on that one. Right. Um, well, one other bit, uh, that I want to revisit before we run ourselves out of time here is you, you mentioned in passing that book four of the Psalter, uh, really presents a vision of the reign of God. Uh, and this is something that, you know, I tend to associate with the narrative parts of the early Hebrew Bible, uh, especially the Torah and the books of Samuel. Uh, but it's not something that I often think of as a, uh, a, a psalmic thing. Uh, so give our readers a little taste of how the psalms present the reign of God a little bit differently from those narratives, 
but be sure to uh, make them buy the book to get all of it. <laughs> okay, I'll try to do that. Uh, I very much appreciate your uh, raising this question. Uh, I do think uh, it was uh, some time ago now, but James Mays wrote a, a, a book entitled A Theological Handbook of the Psalms in which he argues that the Lord reigns is the center of the book of Psalms. Uh, That's probably not language I would use. I'm not sure there is just one center, but, uh, uh, but let me, let me, let me take two tacks at this. One is that there are, um, there are a number of Psalms that are about, uh, well, the language is Yahweh is king, or the Lord reigns, or rules. The Hebrew, Yahweh Malach, uh, I would translate the Lord rules or reigns. And uh, just to illustrate, Psalm 47 is a great psalm of praise of Yahweh uh, reigns. And it's, uh, it's one, it begins with uh, clap your hands, shout to God, and... Uh, and in, on, a little bit later, it says, God has gone up with a shout. I mean, this sounds like an enthronement thing, that, that they are actually in worship uh, dramatizing God's going to the throne, that God's, God's reign over the world has been renewed, and that, that uh, uh, in the midst of all this chaos, that God does still reign and... Uh, uh, over all, really, and uh, over all the earth, for God is king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. And then the, but the most important section is in book four, which is, begin, that section begins with Psalm 93, and there's a collection of psalms, 93 to, uh, well, I would say 101, that, that are about the reign of God, and uh, Psalm 93 begins with that phrase, the Lord reigns, and uh, uh, the Lord is robed in majesty, and the Lord established the world, This and, and the, the Lord established the world on top of the floods, and the floods are the image of chaos. The floods are the things that cause trouble in the world. So... Uh, Psalm 93 introduces the theme, which then each of the psalm following through 100 uh, uh, pursues a particular dimension of the reign of God. So that's that. That's the one thing I would say that that uh, that there's a great celebration of the reign of God, and that it is a reign. Again, back related to the persistence of evil. Uh, the um, other thing I would say is you you mentioned uh, uh, back in the uh, uh, historical narratives that you get the reign of God. Psalm two again is about the inauguration of the king, in which the Davidic king uh, becomes. Uh, God's representative in ruling over the people in Jerusalem and also becomes the people's representative in uh, interceding with God on their behalf. And it is, uh, uh, but a number of people have have noted 
that that's not really just about David's rule over the people. It's also about God's rule over the people and God's uh, reign and God's choosing David to reign over the people. And that that's what that gets, uh, of course, in the New Testament. That is a part of the background for uh, uh, the kingdom of God is now among you. The kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, so that's that's a very important part of the whole uh, psalm uh, uh, tradition of the reign of God as well. Very good, very good. Well, as you examine the, the shape of the Psalter, one observation that I appreciated was that, uh, quote, the anthological character of the collection suggests that there is not one path ahead, but paths with multiple narratives, end quote. And I definitely hear some Walter Brueggemann there, and I hear his emphasis on the pastoral power of that plurality within the canon. Uh, so let me ask this. What is the character of a grammar that allows for different people in different moments to walk different paths, but still call all of them walking with God? That's a, that, that's a pastoral question, but it's also a grammatical question, is it not? Yes. Yeah, and and a theological question, <laughs> or maybe I should say a hermeneutical question, a question about interpretation. Um, there's no doubt that Brueggemann's uh, 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 voice is uh, present there as well, but I, I, I guess I would say, uh, well, let me say two or three things. Oh. One one of the ways that there is a grammar that can do this is that it's a poetic grammar in this case. And I do think the poetry of the Psalter is poetry which uh, uh, people at various places in faith and in life can embrace and can uh, see and can, uh, and can live, uh, and that people will be at different places at different times and the specifics of of their pastoral experience will be uh will be different but that that the poetry of the psalms is open enough and embracing enough and powerful enough that it can uh, um um people at different places can embrace that um I also think that that uh, people people's reading of the scriptures and of the psalms will be influenced by the communities of faith of which they're a part, and different communities will be at different places. And I expect in ancient Israel, uh, uh, in uh, the aftermath of uh, defeat and exile in the 6th century, there were different communities that had different perspectives, and uh, some some communities emphasized the reign of God, some communities emphasized protest. There, there were different things that, uh, uh, that were part of, uh, of, of uh, the pictures for people who were at different places. Now, I do not think that is a grammar or a text which um, uh, which can be read any way in the world. I do think that uh, um, 
there's more than one way to uh, uh, embrace that text and to uh, take that text and to live that text, but I don't think that means there are no uh, no limits on the reading of those texts. Does that make sense? Oh, sure, sure, sure. So there's a plurality of possibilities, but not an unbounded set of possibilities. Correct. Very good, very good. Have I spoken to your question? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and Bill, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have <laughs> the last word here at the end. What about the Psalter, the notion of theology as grammar, or anything else would you like our listeners thinking about as we head for the door? Uh, well, there, I, uh, let me just uh, say two things. Uh, the first one is, um, uh, particularly in the first part of the Book of Psalms, I like I, I like in this book to talk about it as a school of prayer, and it does seem to me that the the overwhelming lesson in that school is candor. That is, it is honesty in in one's conversation and prayer with God, and in one's uh, faith. Uh, both uh, individual and corporate, and uh, it does seem to me that that's that's uh, uh, the honest dialogue of faith is the most important thing the Psalms teach about prayer. The second thing I would say is, and and this is somewhat relevant to the grammar issue, and that is that um, I really uh, worry a little bit about uh, American readers today uh, reading poetry, I, I would like for us to slow down and enjoy and read and luxuriate in the poetry of the Psalms and uh, let our imaginations work on the poetry, because you'll have a Psalm like Psalm 13 that is, I think, six verses, and sometimes we read through that and we're gone, and we've missed the fact that the beginning of that psalm and the ending of that psalm are at radically different places. So uh, I'd love for us to uh, uh, enjoy and uh, reflect upon our reading of this of the psalm's poetry. Bill Bellinger, thank that's you. Enough. Thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. You're quite welcome. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. The book is Psalms as a Grammar for Faith from Baylor University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our editor, audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>